from The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, which is called News Items. Today, we have an interview with David Barboza, a friend and founder of The Wire China, which is a digital magazine focused on China's economic rise and its influence in all spheres. Prior to launching that venture last year, David served as the Shanghai bureau chief for the New York Times. In his time at the paper, he won two Pulitzer Prizes. I spoke with him yesterday about what's changed in China since he first arrived in 2004, China's leverage on the global economy, and the geopolitics of Taiwan. Here we go. David, let's start with how China has changed. You started covering the country in the early 2000s. How has the country changed over the last two decades? Well, you know, when I went to China, I remember the editor saying to me, you know, you ought to think about the stories that you're going to do from China. This is 2004. And is China going to be able to move up the value chain and not just sell cheap goods to Americans? You know, that was for years we thought, the big story is when China would turn a corner and and not just sew Nike clothing or apparel, but actually have their own brands and their own companies. And for a long period, we thought, well, it's still China's making low-cost goods. It's stealing intellectual property. It's not developing its own brands and IP. And then in the last five years, All of those things that we thought were kind of not happening seem to all happen at once, really quickly. So all of a sudden, China has lots of technology startups, and it has even the startup that is challenging Facebook like TikTok. It has more biotech startups. It's advanced in AI, like all of those things that I kind of thought would happen. If you send 300,000 Chinese students to the U.S. to study and they're getting in all the top programs for computer science and everything else, how can they not develop? Because most are going to return home. I did think it was going to take a period of time. In some ways, the beginning was slower than we thought. But the last five to seven years have been way faster than anyone imagined. So I think China is tremendously different than when I got there. Not only more capable, but more global and has more leverage and strategy skill than anyone outside China could have ever imagined. And I like to tell people that when you're living in China, you realize that China is the home of great strategy. Everyone is a strategist. (laughs) And uh, every interaction, whether you're buying something on the street or renting an apartment, there's a strategy there. And I think you're seeing that on the world stage is China gains leverage. It knows how to to win without having a lot of of capital in in some ways. It knows how to beat Americans, you know, American companies and foreign companies. So... All of these things are now kind of coming out in a way that no one quite expected. So there's just no comparison to my first few years in China. Uh, China was coming out, and now it's clearly, it's out. I covered the Olympics in 2008. That was supposedly their coming out party. But things are just very different today than they were back then. You did a really interesting interview with Clyde Prestowitz in the most recent issue of The Wire. And he pointed out that the central idea of U.S. foreign policy for the longest time 
was that by opening up markets and engaging China, quote unquote, engaging China, inevitably some sort of open markets, democratic capitalism would take hold there. That proved to be spectacularly untrue. Given that, what did you take away from the interview with Clyde and what do you think the Biden administration strategy is, I guess, uh, given the collapse of the prior rationale? Right. Well, about the Prestowitz interview, what I've been seeking for the Q&As that we do is, can I find people that articulate the challenges that the U.S. and China face in this new world order? And I think he, you know, I've gotten a lot of response from that interview, from people that read that interview with him, even people that disagree with him, that he hit upon a lot of the points more directly than others have. And he went after the American companies and the multinationals in a way that's more direct and he's less diplomatic than some others. What I took away is a pretty articulate position about, I think, posing the question to Americans, the politicians, but also the business leaders to ask, what really happened in the 90s and 2000s with regard to China? How do things look now? And were there mistakes made, right, about did we have the wrong ideas about China's development? Did we have wrong ideas about the WTO and whether this would lead to democracy or even even a free market? Because China's system is not a free market system either. And he had lots of anecdotes, I thought, about Uh, There's one in particular, I don't know if you remember, where he said he was once at a dinner with Zhu Rongji and and George H.W. Bush, and President Bush said, so Zhu Rongji, how's it going with uh, closing all those state-owned enterprises? (laughs) And uh, the Prime Minister Zhu Rongji said, well, Mr. President, we're not closing the state-owned enterprises, we're just reorganizing them. (laughs) And uh, President Bush assumed that, you know, we know that you're really closing them. But in fact, it was not just President Bush. Lots of people that followed China and politicians believed, no, they were going to slowly shut down the state-owned enterprises and bring in private enterprises and have a market system just like ours. That was the trajectory or that's where the road was leading, including when I went to China. And I think now we know that it was never completely that way that China maybe always intended to have a mixed economy, that they they love their state-owned enterprises. They just right. want them to be more efficient. <laughs> and they believe maybe that you need big state-owned enterprises to compete with global multinationals, which China does not have. They weren't going to wait for private companies to grow into big companies like Alibaba and Tencent, but they're going to start with the state-owned enterprises. And maybe they believe that those can be as good as a multinational. So I think Prestowitz's interview was sort of like, you know, a wake up to a lot of people about what has happened, how should we think about it, what should be done. And in some ways you can read it and say, is it too late? And that's where I'll get to the second part of your question is, the Trump administration or the Biden administration or the post-Biden administration, the next administration, how are they going to deal with China? The game is completely changed. 
you can't now say to a country that you're fully integrated with economically and in every way, your supply chain, that you're going to demand that they make these certain changes or else. And then you're going to get to the or else and well, well, I'm, I'm using an iPhone now and I'm <laughs> using my desktop computer from Apple and basically everything in my office was made in China. I don't think I have the leverage in many of these instances to decide what's going to happen. So it's going to be a very different negotiation now. That period in the early 2000s or even maybe as late as 2005, that's long gone. Hmm. And so there's a new China. It is fully integrated and there's nothing you do to China that won't come back and hurt yourself. And they know that. So I don't think Prestowitz mentioned the answers and I don't think the Biden administration probably is well-suited yet enough to know what to do, but any administration is going to be in a pickle to figure out how do I deal with not just my competitor and rival, but my supplier. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's it, right? Every piece of the iPhone is built in China. That's right. As Presto had said in that interview, and... You know, which the, I read the Bloomberg feed virtually every day, and the you know Goldman Sachs, City, J.P. Morgan Chase are just they're just getting more and more entwined with China, and so anything that the U.S. might do is going to inevitably lead pushback from those companies to say, "Don't do that. That's that's an integral part of our business." It's it's really if you look at it in the big picture, it's, it's extremely shrewd. Yes, you know I'm reading now the the transcripts of Kissinger's initial meetings with Joe and Lai on that 71 trip. And uh, it's remarkable to read them how sharp Joe and Lai was in those meetings, going head-to-head with Kissinger, who's a very sharp guy, right. and in those negotiations. And I think here was a country that had, you know, it was impoverished you know, it was, it thought the threat of the USSR invading China at that time, right. they were, they were thinking we're going to be bombed. We're digging air raid shelters out and you can go into negotiations with the U S government at that time and battle them toe to toe, every line for line in that kind of confidence with that kind of strategy. Doesn't look like they're coming from a position of strength. So imagine doing that kind of thing every decade with global leaders and now with the biggest companies in the world, the American Mm. CEOs, the multinationals. They are great at that. They are great at using leverage, at finding uh, weaknesses. And so the U.S. and the rest of the world is going to have to up its game because this is a very different situation. Even 10 years ago, I'm sure they couldn't imagine the situation we're in now. It's astonishing. It really is. I wanted to ask, speaking of Henry Kissinger, Niall Ferguson wrote a book about Kissinger, and he said that one thing about the negotiations, I wonder if this is true, but one thing about the negotiations is Kissinger had a sort of a long laundry list of, quote, issues, end quote, that he wanted to hit on in his discussions with Zhou Enlai, and that Zhou Enlai basically was all about Taiwan, mm-hmm. and that they had to come, you know, with the very clever language that they came up with to elide that issue. Taiwan, obviously, very much in the news 
these days. Mm-hmm. What's your view of that? And if you can, I guess, sort of describe how you think it might play out here in the next year or five years or 10 years. Yeah. I've been reading, as I said, the transcripts and thinking a lot about Taiwan, obviously, because also Taiwan is the center of the chip manufacturing world. I don't know enough about the politics to know how China is positioning that. I do, in reading the transcripts, I obviously saw that that was the most important point. If Kissinger didn't on that initial trip agree to something on Taiwan, there would have been no Nixon visit the next. They would have they would have kept delaying it. Right, uh, they right. were going to make sure they got that as as close as they could to where they wanted it to be. As Ferguson mentioned, China wanted this opening up as much as the U.S. did, right. but they were going to do it on their own terms. And you can see that even from that position of weakness, the issue of Taiwan was so important. It remains really critical. And the remarkable thing now is, I mean, no one could have even predicted this kind of thing, like that one of the most important technologies in the world, maybe the most important, the the production of semiconductors would be stationed in Taiwan. Right. And so close to China, making the threat to Taiwan even greater for the United States. Right. And so what I've heard recently, and I think it was in our cover story last week, is it would be pretty dangerous for China to do anything with regard to Taiwan that would lead to blockades or actually the closing of those manufacturing facilities and and the true cutting off of all of that. So I guess I'm not, you know, a political expert, but I think the rhetoric is really heated. When I read it every day, I'm just hoping everyone's rhetoric can be toned down. Right, uh, but right. I can't imagine a war breaking out because that war would be the final war, right? There's, there's yeah. not if if there's that's a war, the that's one. that's it. <laughs> right. um, so they can't they can't go to war over this. But maybe what we're really going to see, and what we're already beginning to see, is it's going to be like a cold war, but it's going to be a full-fledged economic cold war, right. meaning not just blockades or, or not creating war in other third countries uh, playing it out, but actually the war is on the economic plane. So who is going to be ahead in AI? Who is going to be ahead in space? This kind of thing, even the idea that countries would find China coming and saying, take Huawei, and the U.S. or the Americans coming and saying, don't take Huawei, um, the Belt and Road, all of that stuff is going to be very interesting to watch that this is a war front where every country, even tiny Pacific islands, right. are part of the war front, right? They're, they're all involved in this, who are you going to recognize, who are you going to work with? How is this economic game going to play out when China makes most of the world's goods and the U.S. has still most of the world's high technology? That's what I'm trying to think about here with our magazine and and as a journalist is can we cover this in the right way where you give people as much as possible without just doing war reporting, not just like they fired a shot and they fired a shot, but – What's the history? What led to this? What are the different fronts in technology and economics and other things? 
I think that's the kind of reporting we need now. And also, let's hear from lots of different voices about what do we do? The, The best solutions might come from listening to not people in government, but people outside of government, maybe talk about what's possible. We're going to take a quick break here, hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with David Barbosa. Welcome back to News Items. One game change, obviously, was what happened in Wuhan in December 2019 and January 2020. China's reaction to the outbreak led, at one point, I think, to as many as 80 million people being under some form of lockdown and some number of millions literally locked into their homes. They beat the virus, and after that first wave, there seems to be kind of a semi-second wave, if you will, going on, but they seem to have that under control as well. They've been remarkably opaque about what happened, and I wondered, what is your take on the various theories about what happened in Wuhan? I don't know that I want to jump into what happened because I'm so far away, but I think one thing that's clear that we've learned in the last year is that China doesn't believe in a, in a free press or transparency. You know, obviously that puts them in a very difficult position because you just basically have to, if you're outside of China and you see what they've done with the free press and with transparency, you have to expect the worst or guess the worst. And I think that's what's caused all of these problems about the lab leak theory and others. It's not that they're true or not true or that anyone really knows. It's the absence of trust in the government that leads people to speculate and to jump to conclusions when someone rushes or puts such an effort in stopping people from talking about it. And I think this is a problem that I witnessed in most of my time in China, (laughs) is the government does not like the media, they do not like the free press, they do not want, you know, press conferences in China are often staged and the questions are handed in beforehand. So this problem they've had, or this, this way of dealing with openness has been persistent for the, you know, the entire time it got slightly better and then worse and then better and worse. And I think it's clear under Xi Jinping, it got much worse, as we know from the reporters who have been expelled and and the criticism. China is an authoritarian government. It does not like an opposition. It does not want protests of even five people. Like I think my first or second year in China, there was a small gathering of protesters in front of our building. They were protesting something across from our building. But immediately buses came, the police came, and they, you would think that there, this was like a, a major demonstration and they crushed it in seconds. That even small efforts by dissidents, even someone posting on Weibo or WeChat is seen as a threat to the party. So they cracked down on this thing. And, and the downside of that for them, I think, and, and for maybe the rest of the world is that it leaves this big question mark often over everything that they do. As you know from the news about, you know, the problems, the possible problems at a nuclear plant in Guangdong province, why is that news? It's news because anything that happens in China, they suspect, is this a replay of Wuhan? Is this a replay of SARS? Is there an effort to censor and keep out anything that could be damaging? And so people are 
now accustomed to overreacting to things that happen in China because they don't trust that the government will be forthcoming. And the fact is they're, they're not very forthcoming. Finally, I wanted to ask you, President Xi mm-hmm. sort of established himself as president for life. Is his political standing secure? Sometimes he seems on one hand all powerful, and sometimes I look at him and I think he's like a cat on a hot tin roof. So which, yeah. which is closer or are they both true? I think most people would say what's easy to say, which is he looks all powerful and it looks like there's not going to be any challenge to his leadership, that those challengers came in his first term. And uh, you saw some opposition as he was changing things. And now everything has gone quiet. Before he became president for life, there were a lot of people trying to oppose him. And now all those people have gone into hiding or, or been very silent. But I think that doesn't mean there is not an opposition. It means that the conventional wisdom now is that Xi Jinping is the president for life. He is not going to be challenged. But from what I know of China, it can swing from very orderly to very chaotic very quickly. And uh, I think it's clear from his actions over the years that they are worried about an assassination attempt in opposition, even from overseas, that efforts would be coming like Guo and Gui, the Miles Kwok, um, and others, that there is always this threat. And also, COVID could have turned in the wrong way for the Chinese leadership. I think there was concern when COVID broke out that this could be the end of Xi Jinping. If this thing gets really bad and he loses control in China, he could be wiped out really fast. Everyone is waiting for the moment that something big happens and Xi Jinping falls. And I think the party operates on that paranoia. And so if you see that they're constantly nervous, you think things may not be as stable as they seem from afar. And so I would imagine that while it looks stable now, while Xi Jinping looks strong, that something could happen any moment that could challenge his leadership and then give the confidence to the opposition to strike now. I I think for me watching from this distance, I expect any year there could be an opponent that comes up and he's wiped out. I I don't think it'll be so stable. I think we'll leave it there. David, thank you very much. And for our listeners, David's magazine is called The Wire China. If you Google The Wire China, it will pop right up, and I highly recommend it. David, thank you very, very much for joining us. Great to be with you, John. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. Tune in tomorrow for part two of my interview with Senator Tom Cotton about the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, President Biden's agenda, and the sleeper issue of the 2022 midterm elections. And if you haven't yet, you can go back and hear part one, which aired on Tuesday. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. And our recording engineer was Simran Singh.